And we ask these things in your name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to join me in Exodus chapter 20. But I'm going to warn you ahead of time, we're going to look in a few different passages of the book of Exodus. Uh, So be ready to move on from Exodus 20. If this is your first time together with us, or maybe it's the first time in a long time, we've spent about six weeks now just returning to an understanding of the Ten Commandments and trying to see, and I hope, if you've been with us, I hope that at this point now you have grasped this understanding that the Ten Commandments is so much more than a deity giving his peasants a set of rules to live by, but rather the Ten Commandments is a marriage covenant between a loving God, Yahweh, and a people he has chosen for himself, Israel. And these commands, these instructions, these words are how this marriage covenant is to be lived out. If you begin to understand this, I promise you it will change the rest of your Bible. Uh, Todd, who plays our drums, Todd was on, at worship practice on Tuesday, and I was, was up there getting a few things ready, and Todd comes up to me, and he says, hey, I, I'm just, Pastor, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm reading through Hosea right now. Now, if you don't know what Hosea is, Hosea is a book of the Bible where a prophet of Yahweh was instructed to marry a woman who he knew would be unfaithful to him. He knew this woman would have other lovers. He knew this woman would have children by other lovers. He knew all that before he was told to go marry her. And even still, when that woman left her husband, ended up on the slave block being traded, her husband was then, Hosea was commanded to go buy back the woman that he had already committed to himself and marry and marriage and taking this covenant marriage. And Todd said, I'm reading that with new eyes now because I see the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel and Hosea was just living out what Yahweh had done for his people. Because this covenant that we're talking about, Yahweh knew from the beginning that his people would be unfaithful. He knew they would turn to other gods and that they would would run after other things. And yet his desire from the beginning, if you've been with us these weeks, his desire was simple. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And we see that in in the first three commands are so simple. He says, I want to be your God. Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people. And that third command is, don't take my name. Don't, don't. Don't covenant with me and take my name as a bride takes her, her husband's name, and then go live as if we're not married. I want you to be my people. And then the rest of the commands are just ultimately what they come down to is how does this covenant relationship work? And how do I live with other people in a community who have made that same relationship covenant with their God? I think it's so foundational. This, this is so foundational to, what, to every other part of the Bible. But what, what we have to do now is, is take the next step. Because what comes after making the covenant? If you've ever been to a wedding, you know that the bride and groom don't stay on the platform for the rest of their lives. They make the covenant, then they got to go live it out. And Israel has made the covenant now with Yahweh. But it's so interesting what we find. If you have chapter 20 open, I want you just to look down at verse 20. 
Exodus 20 and verse 20. They've made the covenant. The Ten Commandments as we know them or the Ten Words are given. And here's what we read in verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. God's coming to test this covenant. I want you to skip down to verse 23. Because this is important to keep in mind. He says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Now, if you know where we're going, this is easy to keep track. If you don't know where we're going, you just put that little command in your mind as we move forward. The next couple of chapters, because when chapter 20 comes to an end, the next couple of chapters, chapter 21, 22, and 23, are simple instructions that Yahweh delivers to Moses that he's going to have to deliver to the people. And they're, they're things like how to treat your servants, how to care for property, how to be socially responsible, and, and even some feasts and festivals in, in Israel's calendar. And then we approach chapter 24. Now, if I, had, if I had my way, I would preach chapter 24 for the next six weeks, but we'll never get to Deuteronomy if we ever do that, because I told you we're going to Deuteronomy, and we're setting everything up for that. But I'm going to zip through chapter 24, because it's, but it's important what is being said in here. I'm not going to read them, but in verses 3 and 4, here's what, what happens. Moses comes to the people after receiving all these instructions that we just talked about, and he reads them to all the people, and the people respond in the highlighted, verses, highlighted uh, words behind me. The people respond by saying, all the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. I think it's so interesting, the last sentence there, and then Moses writes down the words of Yahweh. I, I, I thought that was so cool because, like, to me, when I think of the Ten Commandments, sometimes I only think of the Ten Commandments on stone written by the hand of God, right? But actually, Moses was the first person to write down the Ten Commandments. I was like, huh, how interesting, which means the fact that God called him up to the top of Sinai to write them on stone is important because he already had them. If you keep reading through chapter 24, which we're not going to do, in verses Kind of as we get to verses 7 and 8, Moses has, has crafted an altar made of 12 large stones. He sacrificed some animals on the altar. He gathers the blood in bulls. And then he goes back in front of the people, and with the book that he had just written all the words of Yahweh down, he reads the words again, holding a bowl in one hand, the book in the other. And as he reads all the words and comes to the end, the people respond in the same way, all the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. I'm sorry, I don't have that. Verse 7. And then, then what happens is that Moses takes the blood and he sprinkles the blood on the people and he also sprinkles it on the altar, which like we cannot, you cannot miss the correlation of what does Jesus say in Luke 22 when he holds up the cup in the Last Supper and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here we have animal blood making the covenant, sealing the covenant, but Jesus offers a greater covenant sealed with greater blood. Oh, it's so cool. From here, a few verses, Israel's leaders go up halfway to Sinai and they see an image of the second person of the Trinity sitting on the throne. It's so cool. Then we get to verse 18. 
Would you look at verse 18 with me? Chapter 24. It says, and Moses entered the cloud. We're in chapter 24, verse 18. I apologize. The last verse of chapter 24. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I'm going to guess that for many of you, that's nothing new. You've known Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on the top of Mount Sinai receiving the commandments of the Lord. But what's important is that number 40. Because remember what we had just read Moses said in chapter 20? Yahweh is coming to test you. And when you see 40 in the Bible, a 40 is correlated with testing. Israel will be tested 40 years in the wilderness. Nineveh will be tested 40 days when Jonah appears and preaches and they have 40 days to repent. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness before he's tempted by Satan. It's all a part of the testing. And so what is being tested while Moses is at the top of the mountain? What is being tested? And we know that's the covenant that Israel had just said, all the Yahweh has said, we will do. That's the third time at least that we have recorded in scripture that they have said those words. All that Yahweh has said, we will do. And now we're going to find out, will they? Will they? Let's begin in verse number, sorry, let's begin all the way in chapter 32. We're going to come back to the chapters we're skipping because that's what happens up at the top while Moses is on the mountain. But we need to know what's what's taking place at the bottom of the mountain. And again, I know some of you are so familiar with this. Others, maybe not so much. But here's what's happening on the bottom of the mountain in these 40 days. Verse number one of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, meaning he was there for 40 days, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now again, I realize for many of you, if you've grown up in church or if you know your Bibles well, this isn't a new passage for you, but I want to pull out some things because, again, we're looking at it through the lens of a covenant, not just what's going on in their lives. I just have a couple things I want to share with you, and we're not done. So when I finish this little portion, we're not done, just so you know. We have to see there's another test that's also happening, but 
the first thing that I noticed as I was reading through this, the people said, up, make us gods who shall go before us, meaning where they were going still mattered, but who they were going with didn't. Now, wait a second. You just stood there and you said, we will make a covenant with you, Yahweh. And now, 40 days later, after their time of testing, they're saying, well, we still want to go to the promised land. We still want to go to the land that was a promise to our, our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We still want to get there, but like, it doesn't really matter who we go with. And, you know, as soon as I thought of that, I, you, know, you understand that in this world, there's a lot of people who want to go to heaven, but they don't want Jesus. And may I just make it like crystal clear here? The only reason it is heaven is because of Jesus. Like if you got thrown into a burning pit of fire and sulfur and that's where Jesus was, we would call that heaven. And if you walk streets of gold through a pearly gate and Jesus wasn't there, that would be hell. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. And so, like, if, if you or if someone you know says, well, I really want heaven someday. I want to go to heaven someday, but I don't want to follow Jesus today, you've missed the whole point. Missed the whole point. We are not living on this earth to one day get to heaven. We are living on this earth so that heaven can be brought to us. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. But you know what we pray? Our Father who is up in heaven, we can't wait till we get to heaven because this world stinks. Oh, hey, there are trials and temptations. There are difficult times in this world. But when you have the King of Kings walking with you, you can have a little bit of heaven even on an earth like this. It matters where we're going because it matters who we're going with. Secondly, what also stood out to me is when the people basically said, you know, Moses, like, we don't know what's going on. He's taking so long. And, and, and here's what I wrote down. Like, their expectation of receiving good at the hand of Yahweh, meaning we know we're going to get a land that flows with milk and honey. We want it now. It brought discontentment to their present situation. We got to think as we read this, we cannot forget what's going on. The people who are saying, we want, just get us other gods. We just want to get there. The people who are saying that just a few months ago were living in Egypt as slaves under the hand of a taskmaster named Pharaoh crying out, saying, save us, save us, save us. Now they've been saved. They've been, they're being taken care of. They have a promise to come, but they want it now. And you know what, like, what immediately came to my mind as I was thinking of this? Children and Christmas trees. Because you can put a present under a Christmas tree, a present that you have purchased with your hard-earned money, 
that you cannot wait to see their joy on Christmas morning. You can wrap it up, put it under the tree, and you know what you're going to find? A bunch of crying kids who say, I want it now. But the whole point is, I have a time and a place prepared to hand this to you so I could see your joy as you unwrap what I have prepared for you. I know we can't tell our kids that. Uh, my wife has to tell me that regularly, though. But, <laughs> but like, I, I mean, I read this and it's so easy. Like, you, you bunch of dummies. But it's like, no, Brian, look, like it's a mirror. It's not showing you who they are. It's showing you who, who you are. May, may, I, may I bring this relevant to today? You know, there are, there are marriages who say, oh, I want a marriage like that. Well, let me tell you something. If you want a marriage like that, just go talk to those people who have a marriage like that. It took a while to get there. Their marriage had to mature to that point. Those spouses had to mature to that point. If you say, hey, I want kids who are like, listen, you talk to the parents who are, who are, their children are being successful as adults, and I'll tell you this, they went through the same seasons of, oh my goodness, is this kid ever going to get it? Right? Be patient. And be faithful. Wait on Jesus. I know you want a great marriage today, but you know what? You need to have a great marriage. You need to change. Not your spouse needs to change. You need to change. And that takes time because none of us wants to change. Chad alluded to that today so kindly in saying, I've had this and I don't want to change. I don't want, but yeah. The only reason I'm standing here today telling you this truth is because I spent about a year and a half walking in a cemetery in Virginia saying, Lord, get me out of here. I'm ready to go. And he kept saying, hmm. and my response was, I want you more than I want anything else. And so if this is where you want me, this is where I'll be. It was a tough season. It would have been easy to run. But you know what the Lord said? No, you need to work on yourself. I'll take you when it's time. Man, and it's so good to wait on his timing. Something else that stood out to me. And they basically, the people said to Aaron, like, we don't know, what's, we don't know what happened to, to Moses. And what that teaches me is the absence of Moses in the camp revealed an absence of Yahweh in their hearts. Now, here's what I mean by that. I love the fact that this church went a year, over a year, without a tangible, physical shepherd. Right? Let's just be honest. You, you were a year without a tangible physical shepherd. And what were you doing in those moments? You were clinging to the one person that you could cling to, and that's Jesus. 
But may I say, as that tangible, physical shepherd who's now here, you better keep clinging to Jesus. Because I will disappoint you. I, I will do anything that I can for this church. I will serve you. I will give of my, I will give of my life for, for you. But there's going to be a day where you're going to be like, why did we ask him to be our pastor? That day's coming. Right? But you'll never have to ask about Jesus. Right? See, like, and here's, here's a great telltale sign. When, when the pastor of a church sometimes lets the church know, hey, I'm going to be out for a week on vacation. You know what happens to the church? What happens to the attendance of the church? You know what that reveals about the church? Why we're coming. Listen, I, I work hard to prepare messages. Um, I come in here during the week at some point. I've already preached this message twice to an empty auditorium. It just, it's how I process. I take the whole sermon, I preach it out. I work hard for you, and I'm not saying that to make you feel good, like I'm just, or to make me sound good. I'm just telling you that because like, I work hard. I love that you're here. But we're not here for Brian. Like, we're here for Jesus, right? And if we're here for Jesus, then who cares who's delivering the word about Jesus? That's how our hearts need to be. Now, I say that, and in two weeks, our family actually is going on a vacation. Uh, we, we had it planned uh, long before we came here, and we're excited about it. And I have one of my dearest friends. His name is Jared Long. He is a Hebrew scholar. Dude, he is, he is brilliant. I love chatting with Jared. Um, I asked him to come and fill the pulpit while we're gone. And I said, Jared, the reason I'm asking you is because I want, I want the church to meet you. I want you to meet the church. It's really cool. He's from Ohio. It's going to be an awesome. Anyways, I, you're, gonna, you're probably going to come when Jared's here and think, we don't want Brian back. Uh, I hope not. I hope not. I'll still work hard, I promise you. No. Uh, but hey, listen, please, church family, like, let's make this about Jesus and not about a person. Here's what else that stood out to me. When Aaron basically said, you know, take, he, as soon as the people came to him, he started saying, well, here's what to do. Take off the rings of gold, give them to me. You know what Aaron never did when the people said, we don't know what happened. He never went to Yahweh. He never said, you know what? I know that Yahweh is with Moses right now, but Mo Yahweh can be everywhere because that's a part of his character, right? Let me go talk. You, if you read through the Torah, you'll see Moses stopping regularly to say, I don't know, but let me go ask the Lord. Happens regularly in Moses' life. Here's what I know about Aaron. He gets asked this question. Doesn't even, he doesn't even pause to ask what the Lord thinks. He doesn't push back. He just goes right along with this. And you know what this, this, this reminds me so often is, is how easy it is to react as a parent. When our children need practical wisdom, like we give it to them, and sometimes what that means is we just answer the question for them. Can I just encourage you parents, don't answer your kids' questions by just giving them the answer. Teach them how to think Christ-centered. Teach them a biblical worldview. 
Yes, there are times where you just need to say, yes, you can do that. No, you can't do that. But there needs to be times where you sit and say, hey, let's talk. Let's look at that through the biblical worldview and try to understand because there's going to become a time when your children are going to be making those decisions on their own. And if you've always made it for them and they don't know why you've made it for them, they're going to make whatever decisions they want to. Parents, we just need to, we need to be proactive in what we're doing. This is going to sound like a complaint, and I don't mean it to be. It's more of like a, a fact. But Monday, as, as I stood there and gave out candy at our house for the kids that came by trick-or-treating, I was a, the word appalled is probably a little too strong, but it's really close. I was appalled how few kids said thank you. Blew my mind. They walked up. Didn't say trick-or-treat, just walked up to the front, opened their bag. I threw two pieces of candy in. They closed their bag and turned around and walked off. And every time I said, you're welcome. Now, I wasn't saying that because I needed it. I'm saying that because they needed it. You know, we're, we're doing a really good job in this culture of giving our kids everything that they want. Everything. That's called entitled. I'm going to step into the business of your families, and I shouldn't. I'm just going to kind of but pull a window back. May, may I encourage you? May I encourage you? Don't pay your kids for them doing work around your house. They live at your house for no charge. You feed them for no charge. They ought to be a part of investing and giving towards your family unit. And I say that because that mentality is going to expand way beyond the house. It has invaded our churches. I'm a pastor, so I'm regularly connected with other pastors. I will just tell you, you will be hard-pressed to go to a church and say, do you have enough volunteers? And they would say, oh, yeah, sure, we got plenty. No, every church is saying, no, we can't get people to serve. And you know why? COVID knocked out a generation of servants in the church. There were a bunch of people in their 60s and 70s who were faithful and had been faithful for decades, and they had to step down, and some of them were very scared to come back to church, and so church got started without all of the senior saints who had been doing the man's, the, 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 the majority of the work in the churches. I, I watched this firsthand. The senior saints that were doing it couldn't come back. And what happened is the generations behind them said, I'm too busy to commit. And so what happens is the church has to hire staff member after staff member after staff member because the church still has to function, but now it has to function with paid volunteers rather than the church. And I think that is completely contrary to Ephesians chapter number four, which says, that there are pastors and teachers who are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints are supposed to be doing the work of ministry, not the staff. And I, 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 I'm not trying to get in your business. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, I think this is 
such a prevalent thing, and it's only going to get worse in the church that people are going to say, well, I'll do that, but what do I get for it? What do you get for it? You get to serve the king. What's greater? But can I say this? Thank you, church. This church is awesome. Like, you allow me to be a shepherd. I don't have to be the Swiss Army knife that many pastors have to do, doing this and this and this and this. You allow me to be a shepherd. Thank you for letting me do that. Last thing I'll say about this. So Aaron did not give up on Yahweh, but he tried to play both sides. I think, I think there's, this like, there's this unique thing, if you go back and read all that passage again, I think there's this uniqueness where you see the people are like, they, they, the God comes, the, the golden calf comes out, and the people are like, these are the gods who brought us out of Egypt. And the Bible says, and Aaron saw this. Like, whoa, wait, wait, that's, that's not the God that brought you out of Egypt, it just came out of the fire. And so he tries to say, I'm not going to get rid of the God, but I'm going to build an altar in front of the God. And on the altar in front of the God, we're going to sacrifice to Yahweh. We... Yahweh's the one who said, don't build an idol of gold. You have an idol of gold right next to the altar for Yahweh. Cannot play both sides. Church family, listen, we cannot say to our families, to our friends, and to our community that the most important thing in our life is Jesus if we're not going to live it out. Now, how do we live it out? We don't live out that the most important thing in our life is Jesus. We don't live it out by coming to church on Sunday. This is not how you live out Jesus is most important to you. I think this is an important piece of that because we should gather together. But I'll tell you how we live out that Jesus is most important. By doing what two people in our church are doing this morning. They're sitting in the home of somebody who is attending the church this morning, watching their children so that that mom and dad can come to church today. That's living out the love of Jesus. Living out the love of Jesus is as, as one lady in the church here I recently found out went and just sat with someone who was sad and, and, and uh, needed to be comforted and just wanted some presence. She just sat with her. That's living out. Living out the love of Jesus. There's a gentleman in this church who showed up two Sundays ago because he needed help. He just needed help. And the church should, should be some place where people can go to find help, Right? And because of your generous giving, I was able to help that man through the church. That man, that gentleman is living in his car right now. And do you know how cold it got on Monday night and Tuesday night? And Monday night it was down in the 20s. And one of our men reached out to him and asked how he was doing. He said, I, I don't even have enough gas in my car to turn the car on, to turn the heater on at night. I, I'm just shivering in the cold. And that man on his own went and got a gas card to help fill the tank of that gentleman and brought a sleeping bag and blankets. On his, no one asked him to do it, on his own. That is living out that Jesus is the greatest priority we have. And it's happening all the time. Those are just a few things that I see. We cannot just assume that coming on Sunday morning means I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I think this is a part of it. I don't think you should miss this, but we also have to live it. It's not about coming to church. It's about being the church, right? Walk in those doors, worship, walk out those doors, and work for the king.
Okay. I did not think that would take me that long to get through. Can I finish? That'd be okay? Okay. But while the testing of Israel was taking place and they were failing at the bottom of the mountain, there was one who was not at the bottom of the mountain being tested. But Israel needed to be tested. And so we realize that this testing is not just for Israel. This testing is for Moses. Notice what we read in verse number 7. It says, and Yahweh said to Moses, this is after those 40 days, after the 40 days of testing, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and had worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to go back to verse 7 for just a moment. Do you notice what Yahweh said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up. Well, all of a sudden, this whole thing is taking a very, very big turn because up until this moment, Yahweh has said over and over, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, so I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the rehearsal over and over. I've brought you out of Egypt, so I will be your God and you will be my people. And now, at the top of the mountain, Moses is going to go through the testing when God says to him, go get your people whom you brought out. And you say, well, what's the test? Look, let's keep reading. Verse number nine. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn. Oops, I'm sorry. I don't have the right verses behind it. The Lord, Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay, you get the test? Moses, I'm going to get rid of all the people because they're not being faithful, and I'm going to start a new nation with you. You understand, he's now offered to become Abraham, the father of Israel, because everybody else will be wiped out. It will now be Moses and I don't know, 12 tribes, however many tribes, whatever Moses is going to do, it's all going to come through Moses now. And what will Moses do? Here's the test. And Moses responds. And I love this man. Verse 11. But Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised will I give to your offspring and they shall, and they shall inherit it forever. And then we read, and Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses, I'm going to just do it with you, buddy. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. But then you don't have to lead all those complaining, stiff-necked people. Oh, oh, no. Those aren't my people. Not that he's trying to get rid of the responsibility. He's saying, oh, no, they're your people. They're, and they're, they're, they're the people you promised. You promised that to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you would, of this nation, that you would care for them and you would bring them in. Don't, don't get rid of them. What is everyone else going to think about you? Your word would mean nothing. This is about you and your glory, not about me and my glory. Oh, I think, man, how many people, if they were given the chance to grasp and say, I would get rid of all the bad circumstances in my life, they'll all be gone. I could start over. I could start afresh. The financial problems are gone. The marriage problems are gone. The family problems are gone. Every problem in my life, they're finally gone. Just let me start over. No, that's not the answer. The answer is not a fresh Start. The answer is to let the God who brings life out of death work in you. Yeah, when, the, when it gets all messy, we look at the one who can bring the puzzle pieces back together and make a prettier picture than what it was before it broke. And Moses says, oh no. It might be a lot easier if I started all over but that's not what's going to be best for your glory. My goodness. And then God listens to him. He relents. And I got to finish quickly. Moses goes down to the camp. He sees what's happening. He throws the tablets down in disgust saying, you've broken this covenant with Yahweh. And then the next morning we read, I'm almost done, I promise you. The next morning we read this. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, just like you told them not to. But now, if you will forgive their sin, please. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But Yahweh said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. The last time Moses went to God on behalf of the people, it says that God relented for his glory's sake. Now Moses again goes to God on behalf of the people. And did you notice Yahweh didn't even acknowledge what, what Moses said? There's no relenting. There's no changing. And you know why? Moses couldn't atone for the people. He couldn't atone for the sin of the people because Moses had to be atoned for his own sin. 
so do we. And that's why we are so thankful for the sinless Son of God who comes to say, Father, the people have sinned against you. And if you would forgive them, it's okay for you to put all of that on me. And he does. He does. And that cross right there, that cross right there stands as God's decision when Jesus stepped in between a sinful people and a holy God. And what takes place in the next chapter, although we won't read it, in Exodus chapter 34, Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And God says, there's no way you can see. All right, you want to see my glory? Let me put you behind the cleft of a rock. And you could just see the trail of my glory. And when Moses saw the trail of God's glory, his face shone for the rest of his life. You know, wouldn't you like to see the glory of God too? I know I would. And do you know it's possible? We get to see the glory of God because of a split rock. Jesus is the rock of our salvation, and he was torn in two on that cross so that you and I could see the glory of God. And the beautiful thing is, when Jesus, who's the rock of our salvation? When he was torn so we could see the glory of the Father, it wasn't just a glimpse. Jesus offers more than a quick glimpse. He offers an eternal relationship. Yes! That's my king. The one who can offer atonement for my sin and the one whose body was pierced and broken. And that rock was split so that we can stand here as sinful people and behold the glory of God. And what else can we say other than this? Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. And that's how we're going to close today. We have a rock who was our atonement, a rock who was split so we could see the glory and all we're going to do is simply stand and say, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Would you stand with me? Father, I ask that in this moment...